0: Right now, I want you to take your Bible and open to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. <clears throat> We've been working our way through this chapter for some time now as we have been looking at the function of the law and the life of the believer in light of the biblical teaching of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. And some of Paul's opponents have argued that such Uh, teaching would cause sin to increase. Others have argued that if a man is saved by faith alone, then men are free to do whatever they want. And Paul, as you uh, are familiar, Paul's answered those objections. Uh, Many of those who Paul is writing to there at the Church of Rome have come from uh, Jewish uh, backgrounds, Jewish believers, where they had in their former life elevated the law of God to a place that God never intended it to be as a means of salvation and unfortunately developing a uh, a theology that men could save themselves by making themselves right or make themselves right before God by exercising the law or by keeping the law so there's a lot of confusion over the issue of the law and that's what Paul's addressing in chapter 7 here now in the context I've told you previously we're not talking about when we're talking about law we're not talking about special ceremonial laws of Israel we're not talking about civil laws that give to the nation of Israel so they could function as a as a theocracy but when we're talking about the law here we're really talking about Uh, in the sense that the law is that which reveals to us the extent of God's holiness. So the law sets forward God's divine perfect standard or acceptable behavior before him, before the holy God. Simply put it, the law is the standard, and the standard is absolute perfection. Uh, Be holy for I am holy, Leviticus 11.44. You shall be holy for I am holy, Leviticus eleven. Forty-five. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Leviticus nineteen two. Uh, you are to be holy to me, for I am the Lord. I, I, the Lord, am holy. Leviticus twenty and twenty-six, and it just goes on and on. Uh, the Lord Jesus in the New Testament, Matthew five and forty-eight, says the same thing, he uses a little bit of different words. You are to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Peter, uh, one Peter uh, 1.15, But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because as it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So the law sets forth God's divine standard of acceptable behavior. And again, that standard is perfection, absolute perfection. And all people who have ever lived are going to be judged judged by that standard. Therefore, all people who have ever lived are under divine curse. They're under God's condemnation for violating his standard of perfection. All men who have ever lived uh, are sinners deserving to be punished in hell forever because the bible says there's none righteous no not one there's none righteous the bible says all have sinned and all fall short of god's perfection all fall, fall short of god's glory and from the beginning of time men, men have known that men have known that god's standard is perfection how do you know that well again i read the bible and it says that in romans chapter 2 that god has written his law on man's heart romans two fourteen and 15 Therefore, all men are accountable before God. All men are without excuse. That's why all men across cultures of the world have an innate sense of right and wrong. They don't need the Mosaic Law per se, the Ten Commandments. They know because God has written the truth on, on their hearts. Now, when God brought the Mosaic Commandment, uh, the, the Ten Commandments, the Mosaic Law that came 430 years after Abraham, Galatians 3 and 19 ask why then the Law? Why was it added? Well, he says it was added because of transgressions. So God's moral commands, written in the Mosaic Law, come to give a fuller nature, a fuller revelation of the nature of sin, a fuller revelation of transgression against God's standard. God's written his law on man's heart. He comes to uh, Moses, writes the Ten Commandments on tablets. He writes it down. Becomes even more specific, right? Romans 5 and 20, the law came that transgression might increase. Romans 3 and 19. We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be closed, that the whole world may become accountable to God, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So again, the law was never given as a means of salvation. The law was added to give a fuller, more complete, um, fill in the colors, whatever picture you want He's use it, a fuller revelation of sin. To see sin and then to see the sinfulness of sin. And again, the law was given to make evident that all men are sinners. All men are are violators of God's perfection, God's law. They're unable, therefore, by their own works, by their own efforts, to earn their salvation. Galatians 3 and 10 says, For as many are the works of the law are under curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things, written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, He goes, again, the standard is perfection. It's evident. No one's justified by keeping the law before God. Then he says, for the righteous man shall live by what? Faith. Okay, the righteous have always lived by faith. So again, the law was given in a written form in order to make it unmistakably clear the extent of sin, that sinners would understand they have absolutely, listen, they have absolutely no way of escape. There's no way of escape. Galatians 3 and 19, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Then Paul adds this, until the seed should come. Now I told you last time, and I'm referencing this uh, Galatians 3 passage, because that's what we went through last time. Obviously the seed is Christ, until the seed should come. Galatians 3 and 13, uh, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for as it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. Verse 16 of that passage now the promises were spoken to abraham and to his seed it does not say into his seeds as referring to many but rather to one and to your seed that is christ so it's critical to understand in our understanding of justification by faith that we need to realize that the law does this the law traps the sinner the law comes and closes the sinner in the law gives the sinner no escape route no outlet and again the law comes and puts forth god's perfect standard of of holiness and the law demands that everybody be perfect as God is perfect, to be holy as God is holy. And again, everybody woefully falls short of that standard. And again, God's standard is perfection, his, his perfect standard of righteousness. And the perfect standard of righteousness, the personification of that, if you will, of God's holiness he sent to the earth. It was in him who knew no sin. Again, that's the seed, that's the person of Jesus Christ. Again, that's why Jesus says, Matthew 5 and 17, don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I didn't come to abolish, but I came to fulfill. So Jesus Christ, the perfect standard of perfect righteousness, perfect holiness, came into this world, and he lived an absolutely perfect life, one we could not live. And he fulfilled all righteousness. He put God's divine perfection on display in every circumstance of his life. He, the perfect one, the righteous one, is the perfect standard to show us what holiness looks like. Again, why then the law? It was added because of transgression until the seed should come. Therefore, again, Christ is the standard that every sinner is measured against. The perfection of Christ, again, God who is incarnate. Now, you're familiar with this line of uh, evangelism, and I'm not arguing against it per se at the moment, but the issue is so much more than have you ever lied? Have you ever stolen anything? Have you ever looked at anybody with lust, because Christ said it's not just the act that makes you guilty, it's the heart behind the act. That if you, with your heart, do these things that you're guilty as you, uh, as if you committed the very act itself. That's fine as far as it goes, but that's really not the issue. The issue is, the question is, are you perfect as Jesus Christ is perfect? He's really the issue, that's really the question. Because again, Christ is the absolute standard of holiness, uh, the holiness of God. Christ who knew no sin, Christ who came and perfectly fulfilled the law of God. Christ is the standard, and again, (coughs) excuse me, the truth is no one measures up to that standard. So again, the law was never given as a means to making the unrighteous righteous, because all the law can do is bring condemnation. All the law can do is show us how far we fall short. All the law can do is, is bring condemnation, to expose our sinfulness, and to show us all that we're under God's condemnation, And how do you know that? It's revealed in the fact that all people what? All people die. Right? The wages of sin is death. People go, well, I'm not a sinner. I'm a pretty good person. Okay. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. That's what we have earned. That's the condemnation. All the way back in the book of Genesis, God says, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. The day that you rebel against me, Adam, you're going to die. You and all of your offspring. An objective evidence of the fact that we're all condemned in Adam, all condemned by our own sin all condemned by the holy you know, declaration proclamation of the holy god himself is the fact that we all die so you keep running and you keep eating well and you do your exercises and you get your shots and go to the doctor and all that kind of stuff but unless the lord should tarry and, uh, uh, and you know and unless the lord would return for the for the church we're all headed to the same place that's life in a fallen world It's all of sin, all fall short of the glory. No one meets the standard. Therefore, Paul says in Galatians uh, 3 and uh, 24, he says, therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. I don't know if you've noticed, but we talk about the Lord Jesus Christ a lot around here because he is the issue. Right? The, The law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Not by works, but by faith. Christ, again, is the standard of perfection. The law reveals that we're absolutely sinful in deeds and thought. Law number one, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Right? Jesus took the, you don't need nine others if you're guilty on the first one. You're a lawbreaker, right? Jesus took the law and combined it down. and says you're going to love the Lord your God. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul. And the second one is love your neighbors yourself. Forget the second one. We can't even keep the first one. Have you loved God perfectly every moment of your waking being, every moment of your existence in time? Has he been absolutely preeminent at every moment of your existence? Have you been as perfect in your love for God as Christ the Son is in his love for the Father? If the answer is no, then you're a sinner. You've fallen short of that standard. And again, the evidence by the fact that we live in a world where all of us die. So Christ is the standard. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. You take the other nine, and all they do is keep pounding in the, the stake even deeper, uh, making us show that we are or sinners. We're sinners. The law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. The law comes in, and again, it closes us all in, it, in, it shuts every mouth, makes everybody accountable to God. The law again comes and condemns everybody, and again, it drives us to Christ. Uh, the word there, our tutor, it says the uh, schoolmaster, the King James, pedagogos, it just means, the, uh, again, the the teacher, the tutor, lead us to Christ because Christ is our only hope. Christ is mankind's only hope. And that's why Jesus came into the world. I told you that this morning. He came into the world to save sinners. But as I told you this morning, until a man or a woman sees themselves as a sinner in need of God's grace, they're under the condemnation of the law. And until they see that they're under the condemnation of the law, if they all fall short of God's perfect standard, they'll never see their need for the person of Jesus Christ. And every time we attempt to go back under the law, every time we attempt to do something or refrain from doing something, in order to allow us to stand uh, in God's presence, we're again placing ourselves back under the curse. Because again, Galatians 3 and 10 says, curse is everyone who does not abide by all things. All things written in the book of the law to perform them. So again, the law of God demands absolute perfection. And the law of God not only demands absolute perfection, the law brings absolute damnation to those who violate God's holy standard just one time just one time so again the law written down in a codified form is to show us how far short we fall uh, of the perfect standard again to drive us to the person of christ the one who redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us so what the law does is it comes and produces a knowledge of sin exposes the sinfulness of sin again we are all measured against the perfection of the person of christ and again the law shows us that we all fall short of his glory now paul in romans 10 and 3 speaking of his jewish brethren, he says this, he says, not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Right? See, Not knowing about God's righteousness, seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Uh, The Jews not only were willfully ignorant of God's righteousness, they had no understanding of their own unrighteousness. They thought they were more holy than they actually were and God less holy than he actually is. Right? They thought they were more holy than they actually were, and God less holy than he actually is. And it's not just the Jews, it's all men across the board throughout time. Being willfully ignorant of God's standard of perfection. So in the context of Romans 10, he said, Paul says, look, the Jews sought to establish their own righteousness. Just like men do everywhere. Something they couldn't do, uh, something that no man can do. Again, men create religious systems to say if I do this thing or don't do this thing or if I do this many things, then maybe I can earn my way. The Bible says it's impossible. standard is perfection. You can't meet the the, the standard of perfection. You can't meet the standard. Only Jesus Christ meets the standard. That's why Paul says in Romans 10 and 4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. You want to have a perfect righteousness? You do, I guarantee you, because that's the only way you're going to stand in the presence of God. And the only way that you're going to do that is not by law. You're only going to do that by believing upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ because Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And again, I say, I don't know what number this is. Maybe you're counting. I haven't. The law always demands absolute perfection. You asked me the question, why do you keep repeating the law always demands absolute perfection? I'll tell you why. Because the law always demands absolute perfection. I try to keep it simple. Again, God is more holy than we could ever imagine, and we are utterly sinful. All of the best things that we could ever produce, do, present to God, are nothing but filthy rags, the prophet says in the book of Isaiah. Utterly reprehensible. And there's nothing in the law that helps us obey. There's nothing in the law that gives us strength to obey. There's nothing in the law that, once we break it, offers restitution. There's no path of recovery in the law, there's no repentance, there's no mercy, there's no forgiveness. Once you violate God's law once, once you violate the standard of perfection once, you're guilty as a lawbreaker, deserving eternal condemnation for your violation of God's holiness. And again, death has always been the uh, biblical standard for any violation of God's law. Again, you see it all the way back in the book of, uh, in the beginnings, right, in the book of Genesis. God revealed from day one, when he closed the uh, uh, the nakedness of uh, Adam and Eve uh, with the sacrifice. He revealed the sacrificial system that was needed. a uh, Sin uh, needed to be covered by shed blood. A life had to be given. And again, the wages of sin is death. Somebody has to die. And we know the Bible tells us the blood of bulls and goats could never take away the man's sin. All those things in the Old Testament were nothing more than a picture of the need of a substitute. A perfect substitute which of course is the god man the person of the lord jesus christ as john has talked about him the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the of the world again that's why paul says in galatians 3 and 14 therefore the law becomes our tutor to lead us to christ that we might be justified by faith so again christ is the standard of righteousness the standard of perfection and christ becomes our substitute He comes to bear our sin, to bear our curse, to take us out from under the curse of the law, to reconcile us to the law, perfectly fulfilling the law on uh, our behalf, lives a perfect life. It's not just his death for our death, but it's his life for our life, his perfection. He reconciles us to the law. He fulfills the law perfectly on our behalf. He reconciles by doing that. He reconciles us to the Father. He becomes the perfect sacrifice, the final, the only sacrifice for sin. Again, we can't earn perfection, we can't live perfection, we can't attain to perfection by anything we do. We need a perfect substitute. Again, the one who has perfectly fulfilled the perfect law of God, and again, Christ is that person. He's our only hope. He's our only hope. Right? That's the issue. It's all about the person of Jesus Christ. Now here in Romans chapter 7, not only are we looking at the role and the function of the law and the life of the believer, but at the same time, there's a parallel thought running. We're looking at the devastating effect of sin. right? We're looking at the function of the law and life of the believer, and we're looking at the devastating effect of sin in the world and in our lives. Now, we've worked our way here in chapter 7 down to about verse 10, I think the last time we were together. But I'm going to back it up a few verses, and I'm going to start by reading in verse 7. <coughs> Excuse me. What shall we say then? Verse 7, Romans 7, verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin, may it never be? On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have come to know about coveting if the law had said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. And I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me, for sin taking opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me verse 12 so then the law is holy the commandment is holy and righteous and good therefore did that which uh, is good become a cause for death for me may it never be rather it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good and through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful now that's a mouthful i know for people who have never read the bible and say well you know there's nobody very intelligent would believe all that kind of stuff well you just read paul my friend i want to hear somebody say that i know they've not read the book of romans not read the book of uh, galatians because paul's a very deep thinker here so what is he saying we'll unpack it what shall we say then as the lost sin may never be verse 7 so paul we've gone all through this right paul has defended the integrity of the law against his accusers because he said something earlier in the previous chapter that redeemed sinners are free from the law. Again, Jewish thinking is you've got to do the law, you've got to keep the law, and you do that, you're going to be good with God. And Paul says, no, no, no. It's never been that way. It's always justification by faith only. So he's taught that you, you're a redeemed sinner, you're free from the law. No longer under the law, but under grace, as he said in Romans 6 and 14. So as we've been working through this passage, I've told you numerous times, the sinner, therefore, who is reconciled to God through Christ, has a completely new relationship with the law. I said it this morning, we're no longer under condemnation, right? We're no, we're, we've been set free by the person of the, the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have a new relationship to God himself because now we're not under his wrath, but we're under his, his grace. So the believing sinner is reconciled to God. The believer, again, is no longer under condemnation, no longer under the condemnation of the penalty law, no longer under the curse of the law. The believer has been um, united with Christ, married to Christ, if you will. So the very idea, the very suggestion that the law might be sin, again, from Paul's thinking, from Paul's own mouth, is unthinkable. That's why he goes on and says, On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have come to know about coveting if the law said you shall not covet. So what he's trying to do is he's trying to clarify something he's just said a few verses earlier, back up in verse 5, about how the law actually aroused sinful passions when he was in the flesh before he was converted, before he became regenerate. Romans 7, verse 5. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. You say, look, there's absolutely nothing wrong with the law. The law actually reveals sin. There's no problem with the law. The problem, rather, is sin. Again, he has accusers coming to say that he's, he's uh, attacking God's law. Again, they don't understand God's law properly. But he's not attacking God's law. He's trying to expose what the law does in the life of the, of the sinner, the unregenerate. He says the problem is not the law, the problem is sin. It's sin in me, sin in us. It's sin's dominating power over the unregenerate, over the, the natural man. I've told you this several times through this series here in Romans 7 that apart from God himself, sin is the greatest power in the universe. And it's a positive power, if you will. It's not just a negative. Sin is not just the absence of doing something. A negative can't produce a result. And sin produces death. Sin bears fruit for death. So again, apart from God himself, sin is the greatest power in the universe. We don't understand that well enough. But we need to. We need to understand the devastating power of sin. Sin comes and dominates and rules and enslaves every man, every woman, who does not know Christ. Sin is so powerful that it actually comes and takes the law of God and uses it as a base of operation, as it were, to deceive men. So the apostle is sharing his experience as an unregenerate man, his experience before he came to Christ, before he was born again. Now what was he doing before he was the apostle Paul? Of course, he was Saul of Tarsus. Right? He was a self-righteous Pharisee. And his entire life, he attempted to keep the law in order to present himself right before God by his own effort. And he says that he was pretty good at doing it Until he met Christ. When he met Christ, his eyes were open to the nature and character of sin. And when he met Christ, he came to understand that sin was much more than just outward appearance or outward Action either positive or negative, but sin has to do with the desires of a man's heart that's where coveting lies. I want what i want it's not it's it's not doing something or not doing something it's a lust within the heart so he came to understand that it's his heart was really the problem his inward being and rather than seeing the law of sin, he said, no no, this is what happened the law exposed my sin as a self-righteous Pharisee, the law actually revealed sin to me sin's deceitfulness it, it sin's internal corrupting power i saw that when i saw the perfection of the person of christ so paul came to understand that sin was so powerful uh, in his life that it actually took that which was good and used it to arouse him to do those things that god says is evil in god's sight. sin has that kind of dominating power over the unregenerate man Paul saw that when God's law said that when God's law said thou shalt not immediately it stimulated within him or aroused him to do the very thing that God prohibited him to do. Verse eight but sin taking opportunity or seizing opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind. So again Paul says sin is so powerful in life the unbeliever that it takes the holy just good law of God and stimulates him or corrupts him the evil passions within him. He says those things that were once dormant in my mind the law came and said thou shalt not covet nor thou shalt not lust and then sin takes over and launched an attack and produced within me a coveting of every kind uh, all manner of evil. I've used the analogy with you before. You see a sign that says don't touch wet pain. And before you saw that sign you weren't thinking about touching. Right? The law stimulates sin. It arouses sin. shows us the sinfulness of sin. You say, well, how wet? <laughs> Who are you to tell me not to touch? Well, right? I wasn't even thinking about it. Don't step on the grass. I wasn't even thinking about stepping on the grass before I saw the sign. stepped on the grass. There's something in us that is rebellious that, that uh, uh, causes us to react to God's good, perfect law. And again, the issue is sin. So again, apart from God himself, sin is the most powerful entity in the universe. Sin is so powerful that a man in his own, on his own, can't stand a chance against sin. No man by his own effort can ever escape the grasp of sin. It's corruption, it's power, it's dominion. Paul says, sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind. Don't covet, I want to covet everything. Then he has this, for apart from the law, sin is dead. Then the first part of verse 9 he says, I was once alive apart from the law. Apart from the law, sin is dead, and I was once alive apart from the law. So again, before the commandment came, Saul, if you will, he looks back at his life, now Paul, he looks back at his life, before he came to Christ, he says, sin was dead. Never thinking about God's standards. Thought I was, but I didn't understand God's standards. I was once alive apart from the law. But the commandment came, then sin became alive, and I died. Now what does that mean? That means that before the law came to do its convicting, condemning work, in Paul's heart, he was in essence saying, I was living my life as if there was no law of God whatsoever. In his own words, he said, I was living apart from the law. Again, by his own testimony, he was fine with himself. He was fine with his effort. He was fine with the fact that he was a self-righteous, self-promoting, a religious individual, quite happy to call attention to himself for all the great things that he was doing all the great things that he was doing to impress other men, because that's what Pharisees do. Fappy with the fact that he was religious, more religious. I mean, he was excelling more than his other brethren. Apart from the lost sin was dead, and I was alive. Just like before we came to Christ. The problem, once you come to faith in Christ, is you understand God's standard. You see how far short you fall of that standard And now you're worried about your own sin in your life, which is good. That's a good place to be. Before you came to faith in Christ, you sinned and never thought of it. You sinned like there was no law, because it was not a law to you, because you were were dead to the law, dead to the truth. But when the commandment came, apart from the law, I was dead. Uh, uh, Sin was dead, and I was alive. But when the commandment came, again, when he came face to face with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, when the Holy Spirit illumined his mind, his heart, To the reality of his guilt before a holy God, a change happened. He was suddenly and abruptly halted, transformed. When the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. Therefore, again, not only is the law not sin, the law actually, what it does is it reveals the problem of sin. The law again aggravates sin, arouses sin. The law, therefore, utterly devastates and destroys the sinner. Again, when the commandment came, sin became alive when I died. In essence, Paul is saying, look, before the commandment became real in my life, I thought I was okay. Doing my own thing, living my own life by my own standard, fine by my own standard, enjoying my life as a self-righteous Pharisee, enjoying the righteous deeds I was doing, promoting myself again among men. Sin was dead and I was alive, but the commandment came. The scales came off, the commandment came, I understood the reality. I realized before perfection I was a sinner. I realized I was a covetous man. I found myself therefore devastated and ruined before a holy God. When the commandment commandment came, all manner of passions were now aroused within me, and I saw the, the reality of who I was before this holy God, and I saw the fact that I was desperately in trouble. I was exposed. A sinner desperately in need of grace, desperately in need of a righteousness that I did not possess, that I could not work up, that I couldn't earn by my own effort. So again, when Paul, Saul of Tarsus, met the uh, person of the Lord Jesus Christ, perfection incarnate, his life was transformed forever. Again, the law exposed him as a sinner, desperately in need of grace, desperately in need of Christ, desperately in need of an alien righteousness, a righteousness outside of himself. That's what the law does. The law drives us to Christ. The law exposes our sin. The law drives us to Christ, though we see Christ as our only hope of salvation. Christ is our only hope of justification. Our only hope of the perfection that we need to stand in God's presence because we don't possess it. So when the commandment comes, when the scales fall off our eyes, when we come face to face with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, we turn, we repent, right? We turn from our sin, we, return, we, we turn away from ourself, our self our righteousness, our own efforts, and we turn to Christ. And we believe by faith in Christ alone for who he is and all that he has done because he is the eternally righteous one. So Paul says, look, sin was so powerful in my life as an unregenerate man. He was able to take that which was meant by God to be good and a blessing for men in life. Again, that's God's law and turn it into something that actually caused my death. And that's what sin did. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died, verse 10 and this commandment which was to result in life proved to result in death for me so again paul saying look sin is so powerful it takes that which meant what god meant for man's blessing and puts man under a curse what does paul mean by that what, what does he mean by the commandment which was to result in life again in verse 12 he says the law is actually holy just and good And the law actually is holy, just, and good, and the law actually reveals the perfect standard of the perfect one, God's perfect standard of righteousness. And when God gave the law through Moses, he did so to bring blessings to life, to make life rich and full, meaningful, joyous. This is why God gave the law. I've been talking what the law does, what it exposes, but God actually gave the law for us to have a happy life. You say, how in the world is that? Well, because again, I read the Bible, it says that. Psalm 119, verse 1, how blessed. Right or how happy are those who ways is blameless who walk in the law of the Lord? How blessed are those who observe his testimonies who seek him with all their heart? <coughs> over and over again in the Old Testament, God always says this: You do these things, you shall live. Right? You do these things, you'll prosper. If you obey my war, my word. If you apply my wisdom into your life, my truth into life, it'll be well with you on earth. I'll bless out. I'll bless your life, and and you'll prosper. I'll, I'll put abundant mercy into your life. So God gives his laws, his precepts, he makes his perfect standard known in order to bless. Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord uh, uh, makes wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, they rejoice the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure and enlightens the eyes. But what does sin do with God's law? What does sin do with God's commandment? The commandment which was to result in life proved to result in death for me. What sin does with God's law is it devastates, it destroys. Again, go back to when God actually spoke to Moses and gave the law written uh, to God's people. Exodus nineteen five. Now then, if you'll indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders and the people and set before them all the words which the Lord had commanded them. Verse 8 out of Exodus 19. All the people answered together and said... All the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. Now the only problem is if you ever read any part of the Old Testament, you know they never did anything that they promised to do. They never did it. And the answer to the issue for us is we never do it either. Why? Because we don't have the ability to keep God's law. God's law promised blessing in life, but the promise of blessing in life is conditional on those who obey Perfectly obeying the law of God. Blessing and how you perfectly obey the law of God and, and, and then uh, happiness is going to come in your life. But again, nobody does that. Nobody has the ability to do that because of the power of sin. This is the commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. Verse 11, for sin taking an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. said, look, sin devastated me. And again, perhaps the the most devastating, destructive aspect of sin is found in its ability to deceive. Now, there's many people that sin has deceived who are outside the kingdom of God that believe that they can get inside the kingdom of God by their own works, by their own righteousness, by their own goodness. That'll allow them uh, to live before a holy God or stand before a holy God. There's a lot of people like that. Sin is so deceptive, it's even deceived many Christians who identify as christians into believing the same kind of error by something they do or something they do not do that they're christians and therefore able to stand before god on the day of judgment by their own righteousness sin comes and deceives men into believing that god can never love one so bad as they are therefore they should just go on living their life apart from god because there's no hope for them sometimes sin deceives men into believing that it doesn't matter what you do god is such a forgiving loving uh, uh, heavenly grandfather type of a figure. He'll never judge a man. He'll never send men to an eternal place of final, uh, eternal judgment in a place called hell. Sin is so deceptive that modern man doesn't even believe in sin's existence anymore. Rather, sin is and its deception has caused men to think that their problems in life is due to a lack of knowledge. All we need is a little bit more learning, a little bit more education. If we can just teach people the right way to think, the right way to behave, then the world would be a wonderful place. I said that this morning. It's been going on for 2,000 years. How's it working? That's the lie of sin, the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is so deceptive that it actually has the ability to make itself look attractive, both to the natural man, the unregenerate man, the unsaved man, and even to the regenerate man who's dropped his guard. Sin has the power to look fun and appealing in spite of the obvious heartaches and sadness and sorrows and and disruptions that sin always brings with it. Sin comes and looks like an angel of light, but in reality, sin's an angel of death. And lastly, sin is so deceptive that it's not only infiltrated the church, it's infiltrated or infiltrated the culture. Sin is so deceptive that it's not only infiltrated the culture, it's actually infiltrated much of the visible church because very few pulpits ever talk of sin anymore as it, you're just li- listening to stuff if there's any teaching on the radio anymore I don't even know if anybody has what a radio even knows what a radio is but how much of it talks about sin how much teaching do you hear that talks about the issue of sin we obviously don't use the word sin in the culture anymore and sadly most of the time you don't even hear the word sin spoken of or used in much of the so-called modern church therefore if that's true and i think it is If the church doesn't speak of sin, listen, very few pulpits, therefore, can ever speak on the issue of the person of Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is the only answer for the issue of sin. If we never speak to the issue of sin, we never see our need of a Savior. And that's why you don't hear a lot of preaching on the person of Jesus Christ. Someone said it, I don't know who, but it's been well said that one of the great tragedies of the modern culture is that we have lost an understanding of the exceeding sinfulness of sin in the culture, and that's true. But an even greater devastating reality, tragic reality, is we lost an understanding of sin, the devastating effect or the exceeding sinfulness of sin in the church. And like the culture around us, the church has become hardened by sin, desensitized to sin, to its destructiveness. And the culture, obviously, of drug abuse, homosexuality, prostitution, sexual perversions of all kinds, crime, murder at almost pandemic rates in our society. And not only are all of these evils practiced in society, but they're placarded on every afternoon TV talk show, placarded on the cover of every magazine and newspaper at the local grocery store checkout. It's almost as if we as a society glory in our perversion, right? We glory in our depravity, and many of these things are promoted by the culture as alternative lifestyles. Quote unquote, right? And as a society becomes more desensitized by sin, more hardened by sin, it becomes even more uh, susceptible to the deceitfulness of sin. It becomes if we're dragged deeper and deeper into sin's bondage. And again, even more so, the tragic situation in the case of a large portion of the church, because you see the church has bought uh, bought into the whole uh, uh, lie of the culture also. A lot of times, what you hear in the church is a psychological model of sin, that sinners are. Are victims, victims of their childhood, victims of diseases so-called such as drunkenness, uh, supposedly inherited by an ancestor, victims of diff- people from different skin culture, that's the big one in the time in which we live in. It's not my fault I'm like I am. It's not my fault I'm not getting hit. It's somebody with a different skin culture. It's all you white people who have oppressed me and held me down. You may not have done anything to me, but it's irrelevant. It's, it's your class. Victims of oppressors, helpless victims. The way I act, the way I do, is because of what you've done to me and your people have done to me. Therefore, I'm no longer accountable for my own life, no longer blameworthy for my action. And the church has embraced that full scale, right? It's brought it right through the front door of the church. And on top of that, it has embraced and promoted for quite a long period of time now, again, quote-unquote, alternative lifestyles. It's okay for you to be a Christian homosexual or Christian transgender or Christian fill-in-the-blank. So, the world and the church says. Now, God calls, quote-unquote, alternative lifestyles, absolute perversions, worthy of God's eternal condemnation. So, I guess you're going to have to make a decision who you're going to listen to. The world? The world and the church? Or the word of the living God? Now, again, the a- absence of an understanding of sin has absolutely wreaked havoc in the culture. And a loss of understanding the biblical concepts of sin has also made havoc of the church. It's made... A chaos of the Christian faith. There's a lot of people who now preach uh, no need of repentance for sin. That repentance from sin is no longer seen as mandatory. Uh, that's an al- uh, alternate or accessory, if you will. It's actually a work. It's what people say. Uh, obedience to Christ as Lord is seen as an optional add-on, if you will. And self-professed Christians, again, as a matter of lifestyle, practice all patterns of habits of uh, patterns of sin, which is Again, far more sadly than normal than the exception in uh, the church. Uh, the world. What the world does, the church soon follows. So again, when the culture loses its concept of the sinfulness of sin, it's tragic. But when the church loses the concept of the sinfulness of sin, it's utterly devastating. When the church, again, has abandoned abdicated its responsibility to call men and women to the standard of holiness. I said that this morning. When is the last time you've heard somebody call... A leader or called society as a a whole to the standard of holiness, to repentance. We just embrace everything the world does. We just embrace it. Put a Christian veneer on top of it, stamp on it, give it approval, and say, well, yeah, we're going to Christianize this thing. You can't Christianize sin. Sin is anathema. God hates sin. God has his wrath upon sin. And God's going to punish sin. And guilty men, however, can never bear the weight of the punishment that is due their sin. Therefore, the only way to deal with the issue of sin in mankind without destroying the sinner, while well, God himself remains just and holy with the issue of sin, is to send the sinless Son, the dear Lord Jesus Christ, into the world. The perfect one, who becomes man's substitute, to come to again live a righteous, holy life as a man among men, and then to die in their place upon Calvary's cross as the perfect substitute. How big an issue is sin? We'll stop and think about it. Sin is such a great evil that it took the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ to provide the only cure. So great an evil is sin that it takes the one who is of the same substance and essence, co-equal, co-eternal with the Father, God of very God, to pay the penalty to stand in our place. Because there's no other way to deal with the issue of sin except Jesus Christ the son of god to come into this world and be slain for sin so great an evil is sin that the only way to satisfy god's law was that the blood of god himself must be shed that's why when jesus christ says i'm the way the truth and the life and no one comes to the father but through me he slams the door on every other false religious system in the world they are all anathema meaning they deserve to be eternally condemned because the Lord Jesus Christ had to come of the world, there's no other way to pay the penalty for sin. So Paul says, "Look, sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me." He says, "Sin is the evil of all evils; it's the vilest of all things vile." Because sin brings forth God's eternal condemnation; it brings forth death and eternal condemnation. There was a man who lived. Uh, from 1599 to 1646, a Puritan preacher, a guy named Jeremiah Burroughs, and perhaps a Puritan, perhaps you're familiar with him. He wrote an entire book, 345 pages, called The Evil of Evils. And his thesis in that book was this, that it is better to choose suffering than sin. So evil is sin, says Burroughs, even the smallest sin, that the severest affliction should be chosen over the least sin so evil a sin we should choose the severest affliction over the least sin in our life now there's a section of that book again it's 345 pages long but there's a section of that book where he describes the horrors of hell and in that section he suggests that one act of sin contains more evil than all of the sufferings of the eternally damned he says this suppose that god should bring any of you to the brink of that bottomless gulf of And open it to you, where you should see those damned creatures sweltering under the wrath of the infinite God. And there you should hear the dreadful and hideous cries and shrieks of those who are under such soul amazing and soul sinking torments through the wrath of the Almighty. Yet I say there is more evil in one sinful thought than there is in all the everlasting burnings. The truth is that if it should come to competition whether we would endure all the torments that are in hell to all eternity rather than to commit one sin, I say, if our spirits were as they should be, we should rather be willing to endure all of these torments than to commit than to commit the least uh, sin. There's more evil in one sinful thought than all of these everlasting burnings. The truth is that if it should come to competition, whether we should endure all the torments that there are in hell to eternity, rather than to commit one sin, I say, if our spirits were as they should be, we should rather be willing to endure all these torments than to commit, to, than to commit the least sin. Now, that's pretty, pretty strong stuff. Pretty heavy stuff. Maybe even crazy stuff. What, what would lead Burroughs to make some kind of this kind of a radical conclusion? I mean, and then is he correct, or is he just speaking hyperbole? Is he trying to speak in a manner to shock his readers? We should be willing to endure all the torments of eternal hell than to commit the least sin. Well, he's not talking as a crazy man. What he's doing is he's pointing out the truth. He's pointing out that sin is contrary to the very nature of God himself. That sin, again, is the evil of all evils. It's, it's the source of mankind's every affliction and pain and suffering and disease and misery. That's where it comes from. It comes from sin. And unlike suffering or affliction, sin brings the curse of God. No one's, ever, no, no one's ever condemned for affliction, but all men are condemned because of sin. Sin is the very opposite of the image of God. Sin is the very opposite of life and causes death, both physical and eternal. Sin defiles the soul and separates man from God. And sin causes God's holy wrath to be stirred up again so that the sinner is the object of God's anger. God never hated anybody because of suffering. God hates sin. He has a judgment upon sin. Sin brings guilt to the soul. Sin places a man under eternal condemnation. Sin sin stirs up the enmity, the hostility in the mind of man towards God. And again, sin places all people under God's curse. Sin hardens the heart of mankind against God's means of grace. People are so entrenched in their sin, so much in love with their sin, the light has come into the world and the world rejects the light, as I talked about this morning in John. Sin brings shame. And the man who sins is the man who actually hates his own soul. Burroughs says, It is a very evil choice for any soul under heaven to choose the least sin rather than the greatest affliction. Better to be under the greatest affliction than to be under the guilt and power of any sin. There is more evil in sin than in outward trouble, all the outward trouble in the world, more evil in sin than all the miseries and torments of hell itself. I mean, we don't have a clue what he's talking about in the contemporary church. We are so detached from the issue of sin. We don't understand the exceeding sinfulness of sin. Again, listen to Burrows. Those servants of God who have been guided by the wisdom of God to make their choice have rather chosen the sorest and most dreadful afflictions in this world than willingly commit the least sin. For example, he says, if you would but to turn your thoughts to what you have read or heard of the martyrs. What hideous and grievous torments they suffered, the boiling of their bodies in scalding lead, laying their naked backs on hot gridirons, rending and tearing their members in pieces with horses, pulling their flesh off with pinchers and others by red-hot burning tongs, enduring their flesh to be scorched by being broiled first on one side, then on the other side. Yes, he says, weak women have endured this to have their flesh harrowed with stones and sharp irons and have their bodies slayed and then thrown into rivers of cold ice and a thousand more things, whatever hell and wicked men could devise. They were content to endure all this, and certainly could they have devised 10,000 times more exquisite, exquisite torments than they did, they would have been content to have endured that and whatever else, rather than to act against their conscience and commit the least sin. They accounted this to be a good choice as they saw sin against their consciousness on one hand and all the torments on the other rather they embrace these tortures rather than to embrace sin. You go back in the history of martyrs and you see that everywhere. Renounce Christ, I won't do it. Speak against Christ, I won't do it. Say that there's an efficacious uh, redemption in the Eucharist that you can drink the body or the blood in the body of Christ and you can gain salvation. That's why the martyrs went to the cross on that issue. That's why Roman Catholicism is an anathema because it teaches an alternative form of salvation that's not true there's not salvation every time we take the lord's supper i say that to you there's nothing efficacious in the elements there are nothing more than emblems that point us to the person of the lord jesus christ you can't drink in salvation the body of christ is not there the blood of christ is not there that's why today most people in evangelicalism whatever that is most people in contemporary um uh, evangelical church have allowed roman Catholics to be uh, brought under the umbrella, if you will, of of, uh, believers. Well, they believe in the same God we do, they believe the same Jesus. No, they don't. They believe in a different one, just like the, uh, the Mormons believe in a different Jesus, just like the Jehovah's Witnesses believe in a different Jesus. They don't believe in the biblical Jesus. Christ himself said there's going to be many false Christs come. There's going to be many false teachers. What is the standard? I'm not the standard. The standard is always this book. What does God say? What does the person of the Lord Jesus Christ say? That's the standard. And people throughout the history of the church, when they had a better understanding of the word, they understood that. And they said, no, I'm not going to sin. Evil men can do whatever they want to do for me, but I'm going to stand for the truth. And again, we don't understand that. We don't understand the sinfulness of sin in the modern church. And we do everything we can to avoid conflict. Everything we can to avoid discomfort at all costs. John MacArthur on the state of the church regarding this issue, he says this. He says, in stark contrast to Burroughs' time, today's church seems utterly to lack any notion of the profound evil of sin. We grieve over calamities, we're troubled over miseries, the trials of life distress us, but are we equally disturbed by our sin? Do we believe that the least sin contains more evil than the greatest affliction? Few contemporary Christians, it seems, have ever entertained the thought that sin is that evil. He goes on and says, in fact, modern evangelicalism seems often to teach uh, decisively the uh, the opposite. Today we are more concerned that people feel good than they do good. Affliction, we believe, is to be avoided at all costs. Sin, on the other hand, is thought to be easily forgivable. Therefore, to offend God is viewed as the the lesser of evils when the other choice is to endure some kind of personal pain and affliction." Today we're more concerned that people feel good than they do good. Affliction, we believe, is to be avoided at all costs. Sin, on the other hand, is thought to be easily forgivable. Therefore, to offend God is viewed as the lesser of evils when the other choice is to endure some kind of personal pain or affliction. Well, I tell you what, sin is not easily forgivable. It costs the shed blood of the perfect one, the Lord Jesus Christ, to atone for. It's not easily forgivable. Now, part of the reason we don't understand any of this in the modern church The sinfulness of sin is due to the fact that we have been taken in by the culture. We're part of it. We're no longer strangers and aliens, right? We find ourselves quite at home here, uh, buried down deep. We're not in tents anymore. We're in uh, multi-level, lower-down basements and multi-level high-rises all in the same place. We've dug in our heels, uh, heels deeply. And instead of standing against the culture in opposition to the culture, instead of standing as lights on a hill or standing as the salt of the earth calling men again to repentance and holiness, we've bought into a kind of a user-friendly model. We want you to feel comfortable when you come. We want to make sure that you're having a good time when you come into the building. We're never going to say anything that offends you. We want you to know that God has a wonderful plan for your life. And we've been told that so many times by so many people, we actually, even ourselves, start to believe that. Start to believe, yeah, you know, I, I, I am pretty good. I am pretty wonderful. And the reason that God loves me is because I am so lovely. And if I just keep trying to do harder, it's going to be okay. I mean, you see the cycle just runs around in circles. It's craziness. And again, the only problem with that kind of mindset, it's not true. God has a standard. a standard is perfection. We're not, we're not the victims of someone else's sin against us. You know, if we were the victims of someone else's is a sin against us, God would punish somebody else. But He punishes us. Because we've all violated a standard. We're all sinners deeply offending the holiness of God, all deserving eternal punishment. And every unrepentant sinner is going to bear the full weight of God's wrath against his or her own sin. Every unrepentant sinner who has refused God's offer of mercy and pardon through the substitute that Lord Jesus Christ that He has provided is going to pay the full price for that error for all of eternity in a literal, physical place of never-ending torment, a place called hell. When's the last time you heard anybody preach a sermon on hell? And what I say about hell this morning, is the place where Christ is no longer available because there's going to come a time when God's mercy is going to run out and the door to heaven is going to be shut. Time's running out. And for us in the church, we need to desperately regain a holy hatred of sin. We, we need to understand the concept of the sinfulness of sin. We need to realize the deceitfulness of sin. Because no man is ever going to take the right steps to seek sin's remedy until he sees sin for what it is. And himself or herself is the vilest of all sinners, desperately in need of a savior. Someone wrote this, He says, if we do not understand our own sinfulness or see our sin as God sees it, we can't understand or make use of sin's remedy that would be christ those who want to deny their guilt or hide their own sinfulness cannot discover sin's cure that again would be christ those who try to justify their sin forfeit the justification of god that again would be christ until we understand that we're utterly abhorrent and our sin we can never even know god we need christ we desperately need a holiness we don't possess we desperately need a righteousness that we don't have We desperately need to realize that it's our sin, your sin, my sin that placed the dear Lord Jesus Christ upon Calvary's cross. So sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, deceived me. I thought I was good, then I realized I wasn't. Then it killed me. So remember back in verse 7, somebody asked the question, is the law sin? He goes, may never be. Let me tell you about the law. Verse 12. Paul says the law is holy, the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Again, Paul is defending the just the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. He's defended the doctrine against antinomianism and libertinism. He's trying to clear up any misunderstanding that someone might have on his view of the law. Again, he's burdened for his fellow countrymen, the Jews. He wants to make sure that he understands, and he's not trying to needlessly offend anybody by any kind of misconceived ideas they might have regarding his. Uh, belief in, in the law. Now, while he doesn't see the law as a means of salvation, he has a very high view of the law, right? and he has a desire that his fellow countrymen would understand the law correctly, biblically. So he just finished with the exposition on the wrong use of the law. This is what the law does. It's not going to save you. This is what the wrong does. The law does it actually exposes you. Now he's going to come and say, "Look, this is really what the law is about. This is what I believe the law is about. The, the law is all about." Paul says the law is holy. The commandment is holy; it's righteous and good. So again, any kind of false charge against him that he's teaching the law is, uh, sin. He says ne- never; may never be. The law is holy; it's complete; it's the complete antithesis of sin. It, again, as the law, sin may never be. The law does the exact opposite; it exposes sin. The law is the perfect rule of what is right and conformable to the character and nature of God. Uh, uh, again, a transcript of all His perfections, if you will, as Robert Haldane once said. How could anybody ever think the law is anything but holy since it reveals to us the nature and the character of God and expresses his desire and his will? How could anybody ever charge the law with being anything less than the one who gave it, that being God himself, the one who is the holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty? The law, Paul says, is holy. The commandment is holy. The entire law, the entire word of God is holy. The commandment, the specific commands that make up the entirety of the law is also holy. The commandment, thou shalt not covet, it is a holy commandment. In fact, it's not only a holy commandment, it's a righteous commandment, it's a just commandment, it's a good commandment. Again, how can anything be more right or just than to abstain from that which God forbids? So again, sin comes in, and it's deceitfulness, it comes in and suggests, well, you know, God's really not fair, he's unjust. His laws, his demands are impossible. And again, that very suggestion is monstrous. The law is holy, the commandment is holy and righteous. So God gives his law, he promises blessing for those who obey, and punishment for those who disobey. How could anybody ever grumble or complain if God would actually execute the penalty for his law? Again, the wages of sin is death. You want life? It's there. You want to have a good life? It's there. Obey. I can't. I provided for you the law is holy the commandment is holy righteous and good again the law maintains perfect order establishes the highest degree of blessings and happiness for those who obey because there's nothing more nothing better than a life lived in conformity to god's word okay what are you talking about what's wrong with the commandment that says thou shalt not murder what's wrong with the commandment thou shalt not steal What's wrong with the commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery? Do you want somebody to kill you? Do you want somebody to steal your wife? Do you want somebody to, uh, you know, disrupt your home? There's nothing wrong with God's commands. Again, it's not God's command is the problem. It's the sinfulness of man's heart. The law is holy. The commandment is holy. It's righteous and good. Again, the law proceeds from the giver of all good things. The one who alone is good, that being the person of God himself. Again, is the law sin? Never may it never be all it does is declare the excellencies of the one who gave it everything is right with the law nothing's wrong with the law and again the fact that the law comes and arouses sin doesn't make the law sinful any more than uh, the law that prohibits murder is sinful it's not the law that's at fault it's the lawbreaker right that's where the problem lies sin and the lawbreaker paul goes on verse 13 he says Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? And again, he says, may never be. Again, he's vindicating the law of God. He's saying, look, the law is not the problem. sin's the problem. He says, rather, it was sin, in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good. So again, who's at fault when someone, uh, if someone is murdered? It's not the law's fault. It's the the one who commits the crime. That's the issue. The law is good. It's the sin within the heart. Therefore, did that which was good become a cause for death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin. The law awakened my sin. The law, the law stirred up my sin, in order why that it might be shown to be sin. Right. The the, the law exposed his sin. The law exposed the deadly nature and character of his sin in, in light of God's perfect standard of being again holy, just, and good. Therefore, did the law did that which was uh, which was good become a cause for death? For me it may it never be, rather it was sin, in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful or exceedingly sinful. What does that mean? Again, God's holy, just, good law, he gave that in order that sin might come to be exposed as sin. That through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful, exceedingly sinful. The difficulty with sin is recognizing it and recognizing for what it truly is not what it tries to pass itself off. As I said earlier, the sin always comes in and promises tremendous encouragement. You're going to have a happy life if you drink this drink, if you steal this woman, if you have illicit sexual activity with someone who's not your wife. Man, you're going to have a good time. Go for the gusto, enjoy yourself. That's what sin always does. But it's a lie. Just like when the fisherman goes fishing, he goes with the intent to deceive the fish as i told you a hundred times, it's never a news story when a little fish gets caught because little fish get caught all the time. It's only a news story when a big fish gets caught because a big fish up to that point has lived a life of discernment and he can tell the difference between bait and lunch. But on that day, he was deceived. And that's what sin does. It deceives us. You as a believer, if you just do this, if you just, it, nobody will know. Well, except God who sees everything. And God who knows everything. And God, who knows your heart, and the Lord Jesus Christ, who said, it's not just your actions, it's your heart. That if you lust in your heart, you're as guilty as if you committed the very act. And Paul says, that's the issue that I came to understand when I met Christ and truly understood the law. It exposed my heart. I was covetous, lustful of every kind of thing. Sin is interesting. It's powerful. It's powerful deceitful Sins like its master the devil now the devil thinks he's pretty clever he thought he devised a way through the hands of wicked men to orchestrate the death of the sinless son of god but the devil is not quite as clever as he thinks he is because god the father raised jesus christ from the dead amen the very instrument of wickedness that the devil used to thinking would produce final victory over his adversaries would prove to be his downfall. He used wicked men. He thought he would do away with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. God in his sovereignty allowed it as I spoke this morning. But God the Father raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And Jesus Christ is coming back, and one day he will be destroyed. Satan will be destroyed. And one day when Jesus Christ returns, he's going to take the devil and his angels and <coughs> cast them into the lake of eternal fire. And the same thing is true of sin. Sin thought it was so clever that it could use the commandment of God to destroy the sinner. And God says, not so far. I'm going to take that which the devil and sin meant for evil and I'm going to turn it into good. I'm going to expose sin sin. And the repentant sinner's heart, so that he will see his need for Christ and be driven to the Savior, the only hope. So, God allowed sin to use his law, if you will, in order that sin might become clear and evident to us. And God used sin, or allowed sin to use his law, in order that sin might be exposed for its utter sinfulness. God allowed sin to use the perfect, righteous, holy law to expose the sinfulness of sin. But again, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He's coming back, and he's going to destroy both sin and Satan. Amen? And again, the law (coughs) was never meant to save. The law is the tutor that drives us to Christ, to see we have no hope apart from him. Our Father and our God, we're thankful for that. Thankful for the truth that salvation is found in your Son, our Savior, and not in anything that we do by our own effort. We praise you that salvation is won by Christ and that justification, our right standing before you, is also won by him. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.